Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, that's the text for this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Would you stand with us as we read God's word? This is Matthew recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, and these are the words that he pens. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits." Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is simply, Wolves in Sheep's Clothing. And friends, let me tell you, they're a dime a dozen. Wolves in sheep's clothing are a dime a dozen. They're prevalent. You almost have to try harder not to find them than you do to find them. They're a dime a dozen. Write this down if you're taking notes this morning. The reality, false prophets or false teachers will come. Jesus promised it. Every day, professional Christians, so to speak, phony preachers, so to speak, are marketing their their wares on shiny platters that are redecorated in such a way that people do not know what they are really getting. Their dishes are topped with the language of orthodoxy. In other words, they sound good. They use the right lingo. They use the right Bible words. They use the right terminology. The right religious cliches and buzzwords. And so unassuming individuals garble this down. They eagerly consume it. Even being tragically grateful for what they're receiving. They even pay for it by the millions and by the billions. Friends, let me tell you, this should never happen. And certainly the Lord does not want it to happen. But Jesus told us very clearly and very plainly, in the last days, false teachers will come. You can expect it. That is the reality. False teachers will come. I mean, Jesus, looking ahead during his life and earthly ministry, looking ahead at the end of the age, said this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, take that thought. Many false prophets will arise. Many false teachers will arise and lead many astray. Now, just think back to last Sunday's message. Think back to the two roads. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many find it. Why do many find it, friends? Because the gospel that false prophets and false teachers preach is easy believism. It's very easy to enter the highway of the broad road. It demands nothing of your life. It demands no holiness. It's easy believism. It goes down easy. But Jesus says, narrow is the road that leads to life. And few find it. Few find it. 
The New Testament church was barraged with false teachers, even such that Paul said this in Acts chapter 20. He said, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In other words, will we'll tear the flock to tatters. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. And then we have the same challenge, the same exhortation to be alert that Jesus gives us in our text here in Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Paul said in Acts chapter 20. Beware, be alert. So the reality is, Jesus said it, you can mark it, it is so. False prophets and false teachers will come. That's the reality. Here's the encouragement though. Here's the encouragement, brothers and sisters. Write this down. False prophets and false teachers can be distinguished from genuine ones. They'll come, but false prophets and false teachers can be distinguished from genuine ones. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, just listen. He says, the picture that we need to have in our minds, so paint the picture as I speak. The picture we should have in our minds, therefore, should be this. The false prophet is a man who comes to us, and at first, at first he has the appearance of being everything that could be desired. Remember, everything on his platter is shiny and sparkly. He's nice and he's pleasant. He's pleasing. He appears to be thoroughly, quote, Christian, and he seems to say the right things, using the same terminology, the same vocabulary. His teaching in general is quite all right, and again, he uses many terms that we use and employ as true Christian teachers. He talks about God. He seems to be saying everything that a Christian should say, but he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And his way of living seems to correspond. We'll talk about that here in just a few minutes. One of the ways that we can distinguish a false prophet or a false teacher is their character. The way they live is what they preach and the way they live, live in harmony. Is there congruency there? Is there integrity between uh, the preaching and the life? Jones goes on and he says, because of these things, because he seems to use the same vocabulary, because he seems to, seems to, to teach uh, that which, which is okay on the surface, we don't suspect that there's anything wrong. There's nothing at once that attracts our attention or arouses our suspicions. Nothing is glaringly wrong on the surface. On the surface. You see, the danger is not so much that there are wolves in the world, but rather that there are wolves who will disguise themselves as sheep within the church. These wolves don't only attend, they don't only occupy places of leadership, they are sometimes found behind pulpits, preaching and teaching God's people. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he said, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Jesus tells us here in our text, let me get your attention back on Matthew chapter 7 now. Jesus warns us here in our text to beware. 
Beware, he says, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Beware. It's the Greek word prosecho. It's a compound word. Two words there. Pros means to or toward. To be facing toward something, to be facing to something, to have your face set towards something. And echo means to hold. So to hold toward. It's most often used in reference to the mind. Has the idea of keeping your mind on something or setting your mind on something or putting your mind on something or fixing your mind on something. We want to beware of that which is false and we want to fix our minds or put our minds or face our minds toward that which is correct, that which is right. The same word, prosecho, it was oftentimes used of mooring a ship to tie it up or to, to, uh, for a ship to remain on course. It has the idea of being alert, being concerned about, taking care, heeding. The idea is to be in a continuous state of readiness. We live in a world that is fraught with danger, theological danger, Bible teaching danger, error. And we need to know how to discern it from that which is truth. And so Jesus comes to us right on the front end and he says, beware, be vigilant, be wide-eyed, be discerning, have your antenna up, your radar always scanning as you're hearing teaching. Have a good filter, that which passes through the filter of God's word is a good wear. It's good for your nourishment, and that which does not pass through the filter should be discarded as false or erroneous teacher. Friends, how do you get a good filter, by the way? How do you get a good filter? It comes from years of studying God's word, meditating on God's word, memorizing God's word, sitting under the teaching, the solid teaching, sound teaching of God's word. That's how you develop a good filter. That's how you're able to to have an effective radar, so to speak, so that you can rightly discern that which is theological error, that which Jesus calls us to beware of, and that which we should consume for our spiritual nourishment. But Jesus says, beware. Beware. Again, false teachers, false prophets, friends, are a dime a dozen. We'll talk about that a little bit more specifically here in just a few minutes. But the point that Jesus is trying to drive home is this, that we, the redeemed church, must be on point, on guard, ready, alert, vigilant, wide-eyed, focused, steadied, and anchored by the truth. There is a world of confusion out there. And if we're not growing in the word, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, following him, following the good shepherd, by the way, not the hired hand who doesn't care about the sheep, but the good shepherd, John chapter 10, if you want to study that this week in your quiet times, would be a great place for you. Our eyes fixed on the good shepherd will save us from the world of confusion that is out there. Write this down if you're taking notes. How can we recognize false teachers? Well, first, we can recognize them by their message. We can recognize false teachers by their message. We're warned that false teachers are not only in the world, but they're also in the church. But how are we to recognize them? How can we detect a wolf in sheep's clothing? Well, before we answer that question, 
we need to remember that Jesus' teaching here, or anywhere for that matter, is not disconnected. In other words, there is a progression to the Sermon on the Mount that we would do very well to pay attention to. Remember we said that every text comes in a context. So we need to take these verses that are in front of us here, Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, and we need to look at them in their context. Let your eyes glance back to the previous two verses again. Jesus taught, we studied this last week, about the wide and narrow way. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by them are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I will tell you that the first thing that you need to be thinking about as you're listening to teaching, as you're trying to discern a teacher's message is, is there a narrow gate being preached in this message? False teachers, false prophets preach no narrow gate in their message. You won't hear a narrow gate. You won't hear the exclusivity of Christ. You won't hear that salvation is only is only ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of righteousness. Paul said that in Romans chapter 3, by the way. You won't hear that. You won't hear a narrow gate in a false prophet or a false teacher's message. The false teacher's message is okay, and that what he might say may not be untrue, but it's what he refuses to say that we ought to be listening to. Or listening for. A false teacher can say some true things. It's not that everything that comes from their mouth is untrue. Oftentimes, we can recognize a false teacher by what they refuse to say. The problem stems from what they do not say. Places they will not go. Lines they will not cross. Subjects they will not breach. They leave these things out. They leave out those truths and those doctrines that are, that are crucial to orthodox Christianity. I mean, the false teacher, he may say very little that is offensive to the natural man. His message comforts and it soothes, but it never warns of judgment. It never warns that there's a reckoning day coming. It never warns that there's a day that we're going to have to stand before the thrice holy God and give an account for our lives. And we're not going to be judged on the basis of how we did. We're going to be judged everlastingly on the basis of were we in Christ or not in Christ. Friends, you're in one of two places. Hear me loud and clear. You're in Christ or you're in Adam. There is no sea. You're either in Christ, found in him, not having a righteousness of your own, but the righteousness that comes from Christ and is by faith, or you are in Adam, which is where we're all born, by the way. Psalm 51, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. There is no other way. But the false teacher, the false teacher doesn't speak about these things. He's only encouraged about trying to, or only uh, interested in trying to encourage you and build you up and tell you how great a person you are. Friends, read your Bible and see how great you are. And I'm in in there. I'm just a man, flawed and fallen in every way. 
The Bible is not a book that tells us how great we are. The Bible is a book that tells us how great God is and how subsequently far we've fallen. Isaiah says that false teachers, they speak of smooth things. Isaiah 30, chapter 10. There's nothing in their teaching that makes anyone feel uneasy, but rather only things that make people feel good, content, and tragically, falsely assured. Let me give you a few ways here, a few ways that you can test the teaching. Again, I I said that Usually, it's not so much, though it is, it's both and, but it's, it's, it's not always what a, a false teacher says, but it's what they refuse to say. Let me, let me give you a few of those topics that you won't hear a false teacher breaching. Let me give you a few places that you won't see false teachers going in their teaching. Jot this down if you want to continue to take notes here. They avoid preaching on the holiness, righteousness, justice, and wrath of God. If you can't get that whole sentence, just write it shorthand. They refuse to preach on, they avoid teaching on the holiness, righteousness, justice, and wrath of God. It's not that they deny these truths, though some do outright. It's just that false teachers oftentimes avoid them. They avoid them. The main emphasis of a false teacher's message is the love of God, which should be an emphasis of our teaching, but we just can't fail to keep it in balance with the justice and wrath of God. If all you teach on is the love of God, but you don't teach on the justice and the wrath of God, there is no place for the cross in your teaching. Because the cross is precisely the place where the love of God and the wrath of God come careening into each other. Here's something else they avoid. Likewise, they avoid preaching on the doctrine of final judgment. I'll say a few words about Mormon theology and Jehovah Witness theology here in just a few minutes, but those would be a few. False teachers, false prophets who avoid preaching on the doctrine of a final judgment. Friends, the writer of Hebrews tells us that it is appointed man once to die. Finish the sentence. And then there is judgment. Now, as believers, genuinely clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we fear not that day. Because Jesus has borne my judgment on Calvary's cross. That's the glory of the gospel message. We will have to stand before God and give an account for our lives. We'll be rewarded based on how we've done Good deeds, rewards, bad deeds, a lack of rewards. We're not saved by our good deeds or lack of good deeds, but we'll certainly be rewarded by them or the lack thereof. Paul talks about things that will survive in that day, things that are precious and then things that will be burnt up, like hay, wood, and straw. Here's something else. False teachers fail to emphasize the fallenness and depravity of man. You won't hear much of that as you're listening to a false teacher. You'll hear them talking about how how bad we are, how vile we are, how sinful we are. 
how guilty we are, how culpable we are. They fail to emphasize the fallenness and depravity of man. They don't teach that Christ alone is our only hope. They fail to teach that Jesus Christ alone is our only hope. One of the first ways that we can detect a false prophet is by, again, what he does not affirm. And false teachers oftentimes do not affirm that Jesus Christ alone is our only hope. A lot of Christianese, a lot of platitudes, a lot of make-you-feel-goods, even opening a Bible and reading some verses, but tragically stripping them from their contextual limitations. But you won't hear that Jesus Christ and he alone is our only hope. False prophets, false teachers oftentimes de-emphasize the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Why is that? Why would a false teacher de-emphasize the substitutionary atonement, just a 16-cylinder word meaning Jesus stood in my place, he bore my wrath, the innocent for the guilty, substitutionary atonement. Why do they de-emphasize that? Because they've already emphasized how good we are, and those two things are incompatible. If we spend all of our time emphasizing how good we are, how really deep down we have a good nature, and we're not that bad, that man isn't necessarily born corruptible, he isn't born damned, he isn't born under the curse of sin, but it's just society that corrupts man. It's a problem of culture. It's not a problem of nature. If I emphasize that, then there is no room for the substitutionary atonement of Christ because I don't need it. You get it? You get it? And then lastly, they oftentimes proclaim false peace. They avoid preaching on the holiness, righteous, justice, and wrath of God. They avoid preaching the doctrine of final judgment. They fail to emphasize the fallenness and the depravity of man. They don't teach that Jesus Christ is our only hope. And then they come back at the end and they proclaim peace. Peace. Nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. It'll all pan out in the end. Friends, the evil one would love for you to believe that lie from the pit of hell, hook, line, and sinker. And there are many Christians who sit on church pews every Sunday morning who have drank the Kool Aid. That's why Paul tells us to examine ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith. And we get uncomfortable at that. When we think about that, we think, well, that's judgmental, and and I don't want to become morbidly introspective. Hey, I'd rather be introspective any day and know that I have the assurance of salvation by faith in Christ alone than to never look at my heart and be on the slip and slide to hell. False teachers oftentimes proclaim false peace. James Montgomery Boyce notes this. He says, there's no disturbing doctrines in their their messages. Arthur Pink says this. There's nothing in their preaching which searches the conscience and renders the empty professor uneasy. Nothing which humbles and causes their hearers to mourn before God. Remember how Jesus opened the Sermon on the Mount, by the way? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourn over what? We're not just talking about weak, wimpy, crying, tearful Christians. 
We're talking about mourning over a right realization of the holiness of God and how fallen I am. Mourning over my sin and the sin of the world that I see running rampant in the world, that it brings me to a sense of, of mourning of heart. But the gospel comes along for that individual and blesses them by comforting their souls, preaching the good news of the kingdom. This flattery that we see in false teachers, it's no new phenomenon. It's been happening for ages. Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah chapter 6. He said, they, speaking about false prophets, false teachers, have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Later in Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah declared, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy among you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak of the visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no disaster shall come upon you. Friends, let me tell you, if you follow the stubbornness of your own heart, major disaster will come upon you. Eternal disaster. These are heavy words. Here's some other ploys of the modern-day false teacher. I mentioned a couple of these already, but heaven and hell are just myths. The God of love won't really permit anyone to be punished everlastingly. Satan's just a myth, just something that preachers use to try to conform people into doing good. Sin is just a sickness. It's just a hiccup. It's just a kink in the chain of life. It has nothing to do with guilt. Get rid of your guilt complex. An individual is not responsible for his or her so-called sins. The blame, if there is any, rests on your parents or your grandparents or society or culture. These are the ploys of many false teachers. Turn with me for a minute. Keep, keep something there in our text, but turn, turn over to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16 Verses 17 and 18. Boy, the sound of Bible pages turning is glorious, is it not? You know the sad thing? You won't hear that in some churches. Love your Bible, know your Bible, study your Bible, memorize your Bible, meditate on what the Bible teaches you. Get it in you. Friends, this book will keep you far from sin but sin will keep you far from this book. Okay? Romans 16, 17 and 18. Paul writes this. He says, I appeal to you. Let me just stop right there. Appeal's a very, very strong word. I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you is the emphasis behind the Greek there. I appeal to you. Brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Okay, friends, let me say something here. You can take this to the bank all day long. It's as good as gold. Anywhere, anywhere that there is a genuine work of God, 
you can rest assured that the enemy is present and active. Anywhere that there is a genuine work of God, anywhere where good teaching is being preached, you can rest assured that the enemy is present and active. I mean, Peter tells us, probably many of you have this memorized, 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, be watchful and discerning, be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know, the interesting thing, we had that verse memorized. Remember, context is king. Every text comes in a context. The context that 1 Peter 5, 8 falls in is that of elders shepherding the flock of God. You see, to love as a shepherd should, to love the flock is to protect the flock. As fierce as false teachers are in disseminating their wares, biblical shepherds should be just as fierce in seeking to protect, seeking to expose so that we don't consume it. To love is to protect. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in Romans 16, 17, and 18. He's cautioning us to watch out for false teachers. The same theme that we see in our text for this morning, Matthew chapter 7. But how does Paul describe those whose teaching is contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught? How does Paul, look, look back at your Bible there, Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. How does Paul describe those whose teaching is contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught? Well, look at a few things that he notes here. He says, number one, for such persons do not serve the Lord. The word serves there, it's the word doulos, we means servant or slave. We oftentimes see it in its positive context, being a servant of Christ or being a slave of Christ. That's what every genuine believer is. We're a doulos of Christ, a servant of Christ. But the false teacher He doesn't do what he does because he wants to serve the Lord. False teachers have no love for Christ, no desire to be his slaves, his doulos. No matter how seemingly sincere and caring false teachers or preachers may appear to be, they're never genuinely concerned for the cause of Christ or his church. They're oftentimes driven by self-interest and self-gratification, self-gain. We could go on and on and on and on, but the motivation is self. There's no desire to serve the Lord. Secondly, look at your Bible there. They serve their own appetites. They serve their own appetites. This is a metaphor for self-indulgence here. They're only interested in themselves. Paul describes them in Philippians chapter 3, probably a familiar text to many of you. It says they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. More often than not, false teachers have their minds set on material gain, financial gain. Not exclusively. There are false teachers out there who have other motives, but oftentimes, oftentimes at the core of false teachers' motives is that of self-gain, financial gain. Look at your Bible again. Paul says they're smooth talkers and flatterers. The Greek says pleasant speakers. They're pleasant speakers. They're oftentimes charismatic and very charming. Their delivery is very polished. But they twist scripture for dishonest gain. Boy, this is the antithesis of Paul's ministry, right? If, if Paul is saying that the false teachers are, 
are pleasant speakers. They're smooth talkers and flatterers. That's the antithesis of what Paul said about himself, right? And what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Hey, that's where we need to start, remain, and end, by the way. Jesus Christ and him crucified. At the end of the day, if you listen to a message and it comes to its conclusion and you don't hear anything of a crucified, risen, reigning, ruling, soon returning Jesus Christ, what you've heard is of little avail to your soul. Why can I say that? Because the entire Bible, every single chapter and verse and sentence is pointed towards Jesus. Jesus is the hero of Scripture, not you or I. But you'll oftentimes hear that in a false teacher's message, right? They use what's called eisegesis. It means to write yourself into the text. It's a false interpretation. It's bad hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just a 16-cylinder word, meaning the study of Scripture, the science of rightly interpreting Scripture. We, we ought to be growing in hermeneutics, good hermeneutics. Maybe we should have a Sunday school class on good hermeneutics. Hold me to that. We should do that. But you'll you'll hear eisegesis, writing yourself into the text so that you now become the hero of the text. The text is all about you and what God wants for you. No, all the text is about Jesus. Does the Bible speak about us? It does, but it speaks about us in relation to Jesus. It's very important. Look at your Bible again. They're not only smooth talkers and flatterers, but they're deceivers. Here's some good questions to ask yourself when you're trying to process a sermon that you're listening to. Here's some good discernment questions, okay? Does this teaching agree with Scripture? Remember I talked about having a good filter earlier? Here's some good filter questions. Just three of them, relatively simple. Does this teaching agree with Scripture? If not our radar ought to stop, okay? Secondly, does this teaching point me to glorify Christ? Jesus is the hero of Scripture. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is what I'm hearing preached leading me to glorify Jesus Christ. If not, our radar ought to pick that up really quick. Like a hound dog, it's like... Third and lastly here, does this teaching challenge me to pursue holiness? Does this teaching challenge me to pursue holiness? Does it agree with Scripture? Does it point me to glorify Christ? And does it challenge me to pursue holiness and godliness? If not, ears up, wide-eyed, beware. Beware. The last thing that Paul says here, he says that false teachers target the hearts of the naïve. The literal Greek there is the simple. They prey on the hearts of the simple. And so what does Paul say? He says, avoid them, which literally, literally means to bend away from them, to turn away from false teachers. It means don't engage them, don't dialogue with them, don't debate with them, don't entertain them, do not pass go, do not collect $100, deviate from them. Paul doesn't say stick around, 
Paul says, bend away. Bend away. And you say, well, well, what about preaching the truth of the gospel message to them? And I'll take you back just a handful of weeks when we talked about pigs and dogs. And that needs a whole lot of discernment again. One thing that I didn't say back when we preached that set of messages is that I have never, to this point in my life in ministry, gotten to a point or, or, or been in relation with a person with which I have had to come to the conclusion that individual is a dog or a pig. We should get there very slowly. But when it becomes evident that the person with whom I am engaged with in some degree has no interest in the purity of the gospel, Paul doesn't say stick around and try to convince them of the truth of the gospel. He says avoid them. Bend away. Bend away. Why? Because you and I are a whole lot more susceptible than we think we are. Get this in your mind. Maybe you've been here. You get a 10-year-old little boy in the pool, and he's, he's hanging out on, on, the, on the side wall of the pool. And you get another little 10-year-old boy that's standing uh, up on the, the concrete around the pool, and they have a rope, or they're playing tug-of-war with something, okay? There's something that they're, they're jockeying over. It's a whole lot easier for the one in the pool to pull the one outside the pool in than it is for the one outside the pool to pull the one in out. We're a whole lot more susceptible than we think we are. Paul says, bend away. Bend away. Pray for. With a broken heart, pray for. Grieve over. Come to the one who can change their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and put his spirit in them and cause them to walk in his ways. Well, what are some examples of false teachers and false prophets? Mormonism. Mormonism has a succession of false prophets that, that, that go back to Joseph Smith. Mormons use a lot of biblical terminology. They sing some of the same well-loved hymns as we do. They seek to live righteous, moral lives. And they're incredibly family-friendly. They pass themselves off as just another Christian church. But they deny the inerrancy and the infallibility and the sufficiency of Scripture. You see, they place the Bible on the same level as their other three books of Scripture, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrines and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Not only do they deny the sufficiency and the inerrancy of Scripture, but they deny Trinitarianism. They deny the fact that God exists in three Persons. And instead, they believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three separate gods. That's polytheism, friends. But Jehovah's Witnesses, they use a lot of the same lingo that we do. They talk about Jesus. They use the Bible, but they deny the biblical doctrine of the Trinity just the same. They deny the incarnation of Christ. And they instead affirm that Jesus was just God's first creation. They used Colossians 1, 16 and 17 here, the firstborn of all creation. And they build their doctrine of Jesus being just a created being. They deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. And instead, they teach that the body of Christ was annihilated, not risen. And instead of a literal body, bodily resurrection, they teach that Jehovah, that is God, created a new Christ three days after his death. We could go on and on and on here. about Scientology? Founded in 1953, Scientology serves as a religious response to people's outcry for therapeutic help. How about the Word of Faith movement? This is a bit more probably pervasive 
in the culture in which we live today. This would be the TBN gang. Kenneth Hagan, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Robert Tilton, Marilyn Hickey, Fred Prince, Joseph Prince, Paul and Jan Crouch, and the list goes on and on and on. Newer to the scene are individuals like Christine Kane, Stephen Furtick, college students. Let me get your attention for just a second. Beware. What you hear, let me get the rest of your attention too, but what you hear in a 30 or a 45 second clip on Facebook may sound on the surface to be theologically correct and stimulating and challenging and polished and to be good stuff, but you need to know that there is an underlying current of theology that is dangerous. Dangerous. Beware. Beware. Perry Noble, Brian Houston, Carl Lentz. If you follow Christianity today, you probably have come across Carl Lentz's name. He's the pastor of the Hillsong Megachurch in New York, pastor to many of the celebrities and the elite. Why, I want to be careful here, but why is there such a flocking to an individual like that? Because an individual like that isn't preaching a narrow road. These individuals, they they talk a lot about faith, they use scripture But they declared that the purpose of Jesus was simply to deliver us from sickness and want in this present age. That's not what Jesus told the scribes or his disciples that they could expect if they followed him. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, the scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you you wherever you go. How did Jesus respond? He said, Foxes of the ground have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Doesn't sound like prosperity to me. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have much trouble, much tribulation. You can mark it. You can take it to the bank. How about Rob Bell? Remember that guy? He kind of faded off somewhere, but residue still hangs around. He's an engaging communicator, an eloquent storyteller. He's highly praised as a thinker. Early on, he garnered a a very popular following, especially amongst young evangelicals with his NUMA videos. He was praised for being creative, envelope-pushing without quite crossing the line into heretical teaching. But as his popularity soared, so sadly came the increase of his connection to sound biblical doctrine. You see, the gospel, friends, the gospel, hear me loud and clear, everyone in here, the gospel declares that a good and holy God sent his son to die for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserve, that substitutionary atonement. That all of us are sinners, so that we have no good works, no good reputation, and none of it would ever be good enough if we did before a thrice holy God. But if we trust in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, we can be rescued from the wrath to come. That's the gospel message in its simplicity. Which, by the way, can can you articulate the gospel in the amount of time it takes for the person who checks you out at the grocery store to hear it? There's a good challenge for you. We we ought to be able to condense the gospel message in enough time that I can share it relationally, lovingly, with the person who checks me out at the grocery store. That's two to three minutes. Here's what Bell comes along and he says. He says, well, maybe none of that's really true. In fact, maybe this whole story is not even biblical. Maybe it's not even good news. Maybe it's a false story, Bell wonders. An endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies. 
Maybe the gospel isn't good news, but terribly depressing news. Maybe this is the reason that so many people are rejecting Christianity. No, the reason so many people are rejecting Christianity is because of the hardness of their hearts, not because of the truth of the message. Paul said, faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17. Hearing the word of Christ. How about Joel Osteen? Looks good, always smiling, large church, best-selling books in Christian bookstores, but no sin, no judgment, no gospel that draws a line in the sand. Osteen's gospel is positive thinking, comfortable lifestyle, and a theology of victory. What itching ear wouldn't be tickled by enjoying your best life now? How about instead of that, how about, how about enjoying God and glorifying him forever? Write that book. How about T.D. Jakes? Sounds good, knows how to preach, emotional, sweats a lot, but he's a modalist. Just a big word, L- listen to me friends, just a big word that means that he blatantly denies that God has always existed in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He would say that the, the Spirit is just a mode of God's existence, and the Son is just a mode of God's existence, and God kind of just weaves in and out of these three modes. Th- that is a departure from Orthodox Christianity, it's heresy, but he sells millions of books. Praise as a conference speaker, beware. And you say, okay, why do you name names? I need to land the plane here. Why do you name names, Eric? Some individuals think that's mean-spirited and unloving to name names and to call individuals out on their teaching. Well, let me ask you this. What if a catastrophic fire broke out And the responding company of firefighters come knocking on your door just to tell you there's a fire somewhere in your city, but I don't quite feel comfortable telling you where it's at. Como? Hello? No, that's not helpful at all. That's not helpful at all. The homeowner needs to know that the fire is right next door so they can take appropriate action. You see, despite the fact that many Americans own multiple copies of the Bible, biblical illiteracy is on the rise. People fail to see the Bible's relevance. They don't take time to read the Bible. And when they do, they oftentimes struggle with its language. Why? Because they don't familiarize themselves with it. Many individuals recognize the theoretical importance of Scripture, but they lack the understanding to engage it in a meaningful way. Why? Because they're just garbling down garbage. The result is that they're susceptible to the buffet of false teaching that carries, quote, the aroma of Christ, but is ultimately just fillers, preservatives, and artificial sweeteners. That's all it is. I don't name names with malice or with glee, but rather with deep pastoral sadness, both for the individuals that have deviated from biblical orthodoxy, for the false teachers, but also for the countless followers who have bought into their teaching hook, line, and sinker. It breaks my heart, and it ought to break yours too. We don't stand here stiff-necked, nose up. We ought to be humbled, humbled to the core that God has given us the grace to remain faithful to his word. Let me just give you two other quick points and we'll land the plane here. Number two, how can we recognize false teachers by their character? I've already mentioned a bunch of this. I'm not going to say anything else about it. You can recognize a false teacher, number one, you've already written it down, by their message. And secondly, by their character. Turn back over just really briefly to Matthew chapter 7. 
I'm not going to comment on it, but I'm just going to point you back to Jesus' own words. Matthew 17, or 7. Look at verse 16 and the following. We can recognize a false teacher by their message. Secondly, we can recognize a false teacher by their character. Jesus says this, beginning in verse 16, you'll recognize them, you'll know them, you'll be able to discern them, you'll be able to pick them out, he says, by their fruits. That's their character. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You ever wonder why the Bible doesn't answer some questions? It's because the answer is emphatically implied. No. So every tree that bears good fruit, so every healthy tree rather bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Hey, let me... It's real clear. Character. Does what a false teacher or false preacher says line up with what they do? They have a corresponding lifestyle. Is there a character that matches their preaching? Jesus says a false teacher is like the bad fruit. It's like a diseased tree, and it can't bear bad, or cannot bear good fruit. You see, a wolf can wear sheep's clothing, but it can't grow a sheep's coat. It's possible to put grapes on thorn bushes and figs on thistles, but they can't grow there organically. It's possible to subscribe, at least verbally, to the Beatitudes, and yet never truly own them from within. But time will, re- will reveal the true nature of the fruit. Sooner or later, the reality of a man or a woman's character will come shining through. I see your true colors shining through. Third, we can recognize them by their disciples. We we reproduce what we are, okay? We reproduce what we are. False teachers reproduce false converts because they do not preach a narrow road. They produce false converts. And so we need to be listening Having our ears up, be discerning, listen to what teachers say, listen to what a teacher doesn't say, look at their character, and then look at their disciples, look at what they're reproducing, and ask yourself, does it match up with what I see in my Bible? If not, bend away, Paul tells us.